you studied your lesson this week, and as we start this morning, some of you might wonder why I didn't just sit down with Pastor Magine and he and I just have to talk about this lesson because a lot of it's towards leadership. Well, first of all, we're all leaders in some way. He just happens to be the, the, uh, the leader that's up front. So this is not for Pastor Magine. This is for all of us this morning. And we're talking about humility this morning. And humility is something that is not very popular in our culture today. We, we see a few rare examples of humility um, that are recognized publicly. One of those is Mother Teresa. Uh, but for every Mother Teresa there is, there's hundreds of, of arrogant athletes and actors and other people that are in prominence that consider ego and pride as virtues. We are called as Christians to live our lives differently from the more common attitude of, of, well, what's in it for me? A lot of people in the world today, they decide if they're going to do something strictly by, well, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? And that goes so far against what we're going to talk about today. And so I want us to get into this. Many of the passages we're reading today, as I said earlier, are directed at those in leadership roles in the church. And so nobody says, well, that's good. I'm just going to sleep this one out. Um, there's parts there for all of us. Because in some way, someone is looking at you and the way you live your life. And the fact, the mere fact that they're looking at you and how you live your life means that they are looking to you as a leader. And so all of us in, in our own way, in our own circle of influence, are leaders. First Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock, that is, under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Boy, we could have a good time with that one part there. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. These instructions that Peter was given were primarily directed toward the elders or the local leaders of the, the early church. And Peter could, he, he was in a place where he could do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, he himself was an elder. Um, remember also, he was one of the original 12 apostles. And one of the requirements for being a, an apostle was an eyewitness account of Jesus Christ and his ministry. And Peter said that he did that. He said, I was a witness of Christ's sufferings, which means that right there, along with being called specifically, shows that he was qualified to be an apostle. And since he was an apostle, he was also qualified to speak to the elders in the churches. And Peter didn't just witness the suffering of Christ. If you read through Scripture, you'll see that Peter suffered some of his own sufferings. Acts 5 and 40, his speech, his speech persuaded them. Then they called the apostles in, Peter was among this group, and they had them flogged. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And Peter was in that group, but it didn't discourage him. He had seen what can happen when he stood up and preached the message of Jesus, preached the gospel. But it still didn't slow him down. 
Instead, it caused Peter to remind himself and, and those around him that he would share in the, in the future glory when Christ returned. He was saying, whatever happens down here is not the, the end all of everything because this is just a short period of time on this earth. This isn't everything. We, are, we have something coming that is so much greater than this. And he said, and I know that regardless of what I suffer down here, someday I will share in the glory of Christ when he returns. Peter commanded the, the elders of the church to, to be shepherds or overseers of the flock, the flock being the church. And they were to watch over the physical and the spiritual well-being of their congregations. Now, as far as shepherding goes, I'm not a shepherd. I never have been a shepherd, and I don't know that I know any shepherds. But I have read some about being a shepherd. And there's three, basically three main responsibilities of a shepherd. One is leadership, another is provision, and a third is protection. Let's go back to number one. First and foremost, shepherds were responsible for leading their sheep. Without the, the gentle leading and the familiar voice of the shepherd, the sheep would have been totally lost hopeless and afraid. Sheep are not known for their sharp navigational skills. You can take a bunch of sheep and turn them loose, and they'll just all wander off and get lost, and they won't find their way home. Not like cows where you can just stick them out in the pasture, and even at a certain time, they even know when it's time to come back, and they just all head in the, start heading back towards the barn. Sheep just wander off and get lost and die. So the leading of the sheep was primarily the, the, the role of the shepherd, to lead them. Second major duty was to provide their flocks with green pastures, still waters, and safe shelter. The extent of a shepherd's concern for his sheep is pointed out. If we, let's look at Luke 15, verses 3 through 7. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And goes home, then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. If a sheep was lost, the shepherd would make sure all the other sheep were safe, and he would go out and look for that one lost sheep. He'd leave the, the ninety-nine out of the hundred to go look for one. But it didn't end there. When he found that lost sheep, he would go back home and he would buy, invite his neighbors over and they would rejoice that he has found his lost sheep. That's how much the sheep meant to the shepherd. He knew that they were his responsibility and he loved them and he knew that, that he had to provide safety for them. So that was the, one of the second, that second thing that a shepherd had as far as a duty. The third duty of the shepherd was to be willing to defend the sheep against anything that would harm them. Now, we're talking about regular shepherds here, but you can see the spiritual context here also. He would even be willing to defend them to the point that he would give his life. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
We'll get back to that too. Sheep are not only not known for their navigational skills, they're also not known for their fighting skills. Not a lot of ninja sheep out there. John was saying that if the shepherd really loved his sheep, he would be willing to die for them. But someone who was only doing it for the money, the hired hand as he referred to him, someone that was only doing it for the money, when it came right down to it, they would run away at the first sign of danger. Why? It was the mindset of there's nothing in it for me to stay around here and get hurt. These aren't my sheep. So if they're not my sheep, and I was only doing it to get paid, they can't pay me enough to do this. That was the attitude. But the shepherd was completely the opposite. The shepherd was, was so dedicated to his sheep and protection of his sheep that he would lay down his life to protect his sheep. If you go back to the Old Testament and you look at David, there was a time when David killed a bear. Another time when he killed a lion. It wasn't for fun. He wasn't on a safari. These were animals that were, were coming after his sheep because what was his job? He was a shepherd. And he did that to protect his, his flock that he was in charge of because he knew that it was his responsibility. That's why Peter wrote what he did in 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, Peter, he writes three contrasting exhortations, and each one com contains a positive and a negative element. First of all, Peter wrote that the, the elders were to undertake this ministry because of a heartfelt desire to do so, not because somebody had coerced them into doing it. If you're going to be a leader, do it because that's what God has called you to do, not because somebody told you that they think you should be a leader. There's a lot of men that are in the ministry, air quotes, today because someone told them that they should be a minister. They didn't have a call, but somebody told them that they were called, and so they believed it and they went off in the ministry. It's going to be very difficult to be successful in the ministry if there wasn't a call on your life. And Peter was saying, when if you are going to be one of those shepherds. Make sure you do it for the right reason. Not because you must, but because you are willing. Not because, well, our pastor left and want anybody else to do it, so they picked me. Well, that's not going to work either. It's because you feel like that's what God is calling you to do. Secondly, they were ministers because they were eager to serve God, not because they were greedy for material gain. That's what it says. As God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. And boy, that just eliminates a whole lot of people today. And I won't name names. I could. But I will tell you this. If a person gets into the ministry for the fame and the fortune and the money and all of those other things, then I believe that their reward is in whatever they got here on this earth. Because it's for the wrong reason. Peter was very specific. Do not do it for the money. And I wonder sometimes how some of these pastors can teach from the Bible and preach from the Bible and say that they believe the entire Bible, 
And they miss that scripture. I would guess it's on purpose. Thirdly, leaders were to lead by example, not using heavy-handed tactics to lord over the people. There are leaders in, in lots of different venues, whether it's the workplace or in church or in, in lots of different areas, that lead by intimidation <clears throat> and lead by fear. If that's the way that God wanted it, then he would not have used the example of a shepherd and his sheep. Because you lead sheep, you don't drive them like cattle. That staff that the shepherd carries is not in his hand to beat those sheep so that they'll stay running ahead of him. That's not the reason. You lead the sheep. What happens in that type of leadership to where the leadership lords over the, the, the flock is that it becomes something of fear. It becomes something where people only do what the, what the leader says because they're afraid of what might happen if they don't. Fear of, if you don't do exactly what I say, you're going to go to hell. Was it in the Bible? Don't worry about that. If you don't do what I say, you're going to go to hell. And what happens from that? Often it turns into a cult situation. And you end up with a situation like with, with Jim Jones that took over 900 people and out of fear as, as their pastor... This is a man that was a Pentecostal preacher at one time. As their pastor, he coerced over 900 people to drink Kool-Aid that was laced with cyanide and commit mass suicide. Why? Because of fear. And the ones that refused to do it, he had the other one shoot them. That's fear. That's leading out of fear. And that's why, that's why Peter wrote specifically about this, saying, don't do it in the way that you lord over the people. Lead by leading. You say, well, what does that have to do with me? Somebody's watching you. No matter what you do in your walk with God, somebody is watching you, and they are going to think that the way that you live your life is the way that a Christian should live their life. Not the do as I say, but not like I do. Peter just wiped all that out at one time being examples for the flock. Peter concluded that if the elders would serve as shepherds, as he had laid out in these verses, that when Christ returned, that they would receive a crown of glory that would never fade away. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. Young men, now here's to the rest of us. I like to think that's me. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And you notice those quotation marks there, so you know that the writer was referring to somebody else's writing. We'll come back to that. Humble yourselves, therefore, under, under, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I think the King James Version says, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. After exhorting the, the elders to be shepherds of the flock, Peter turns his attention to the sheep. And he tells the younger men that they must willingly submit 
to the authority of the older men or to the elders. And those would be the leaders in the church, most likely. And then he told all of them, both young and old, to clothe themselves in humility. And we look at that and we go, well, I don't really know what that means. I think Peter was trying to, to make a picture of, of them taking on something similar in that those days, the, the slaves and the servants would, would wear a certain type of apron as they were in their service. And I think that's what Peter was referring to, to take on that apron that designates you as a servant. Maybe not literally, but figuratively, to take on that so we know that we are servants of our brothers. Humility, as we said before, is not a real popular thing in our culture, but it is an essential ingredient of service. It will be very difficult to you, for you to be a servant and have a servant attitude without humility. The greatest example that we could ever have, we have here in the Word of God, and that's of Jesus Christ. One of the examples was after they had eaten one night, Jesus goes and he gets a, a pan of water and, and he ties a towel around his waist and he sits down and kneels down in front of the disciples one at a time and he starts to wash their feet. Now keep in mind who this is. This is God himself manifest in flesh that has come down to earth and he's kneeling in front of his followers and he's washing their feet. And the significance of that was that in that day people wore sandals, they didn't have paved roads, the roads were dirty and, and dusty and when people came into a house they took their sandals off, left them outside, and the lowliest of servants, if you had servants, the lowliest of servants would come and they would wash the visitor's feet. That was the entry-level servant job. It was a job that nobody wanted. And yet Jesus humbled himself to a point where he was willing to do that. So we have this tremendous example of what humility should be. To drive his point home a little bit more, Peter refers to Proverbs 3 and 34. And he shows that, that God is against the arrogant, but he accepts the humble with favor. Proverbs said he mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. It follows, if it follows to believe that we are to submit to each other with humility, then it would only stand to reason that we should submit to God's sovereign authority. If we're supposed to submit to each other, then it only makes sense that we are also supposed to submit to God. Scripture shows us that the, the road to exaltation is paved with humble service. As Peter wrote in verse 6, it is the humble who in due time will be lifted up. Those that go around lifting themselves up They've already lifted themselves up as high as they're going to get. Whatever lifting up they did on their own is the extent of their lifting up. But Peter says here that under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Those of you that are humble, at some point God will lift you up. Let's look back at a, a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. This is praying out loud. This isn't some silent prayer. He's standing up in public thanking God that he's not like that guy. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Both of these men came to the temple supposedly to worship. But for the Pharisee, his worship was to stand up in public and recount out loud all of his acts of righteousness and thanking God for helping him be better than everyone else. For the tax collector, it meant simply acknowledging his own sinfulness and praying for God's forgiveness. He humbled himself before God, and he acknowledged his need for mercy. God, I'm nothing. He wouldn't even look up. The other guy was so proud, he was probably looking up and looking around, making sure that he timed everything just right when people were looking at him. But the tax collector stood with his head bowed, and he humbled himself, and all he did was acknowledge that, I just need mercy. Now, why is this significant? In that day, tax collectors were some of the most hated people in the world. Why? Because, remember, these people are under Roman rule. They're Jews, but the Romans have conquered all, most all of the known world of the time. They're under Roman rule, and the taxes were being taxed on these people by Rome. Now, these were usually Jews that were collecting from their fellow Jews to give to the Roman government. And so everybody hated them. Not just for that reason, but also because a lot of times they'd collect a little extra for themselves. So they were very much hated. They were thought of as being the evil people of all evil, whereas the Pharisees were thought of as being the holy of all holy people. And yet we see the reaction of the two when they came in the presence of God. You see, humility does not mean that we turn into doormats. It's not what it means. Humility is not weakness. On the other hand, you had the Pharisee. And what this Pharisee had was something I would call false humility. And false humility is not humility at all. We have to remember that if we brag about our humility, we just lost it. I saw a little cartoon this past week, and there was this elder pastor and a younger pastor, and they were walking along talking about humility, and the elder pastor said, you know what, I was being humble before you ever thought about. <laughs> well, okay. 
You kind of missed the point there. There was another one that it showed the pastor's door. And it said, Pastor so-and-so, so-and-so the third. Pastor and all the degrees, just like three rows of degrees and at the bottom, and your humble servant. You see, we have to be careful that we don't get lifted up and caught up in our own humility because then it just went away. Verse 7, Peter called on his readers not to, to carry their stress and anxiety around, but rather cast it on the Lord. Those who endure suffering and persecution and still maintain that same humility can cast their anxieties and their cares and their, their worries, they can cast it all on the one that is genuinely concerned about their well-being, their shepherd. Remember, the shepherd is the one that cares about their well-being completely. And so if there is anxiety and there are problems and there are things, we can cast it on the Lord, who Peter referred to as our chief shepherd. He's the big shepherd of shepherds. The word cast here means to place the responsibility of an outcome of a situation totally on the shoulders of another. You know what, God? I can't do this anymore. Here. Cheers. And as much as we want to do that, it's very difficult to do. Maybe it's not for you. I'm just being honest. It's very difficult for me to do. Because when I, when I find myself in a situation that, that maybe I'm struggling with something, it makes me want to work it out even more. And I get so involved in it that sometimes I forget about the fact that I can cast these things on Him because He cares for me. And if I really remember that He is the chief shepherd and I'm just a sheep, what were the responsibilities of the shepherd? Let's look real quick. Leadership, provision, and protection. And if we really believe that, then we would have no problem casting our anxieties and our stresses and our cares on the Lord who cares for us. Our confidence as believers Rest in knowing that when we do that, He will sustain us. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 11. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter made it clear that we should trust in the Lord. But he also went on to say that we need to look out for our most dangerous adversary, and that's the devil. He compared the devil to a lion that, that wanders around looking for prey and the opportunity to pounce on that person and devour that spiritual life of a believer. 
Now, for us, we relate to that through seeing National Geographic or, or one of those animal planet shows when we see a lion tracking somebody or tracking something down to jump on and kill. And we go, oh, I know what's, what that is. But for Peter's people that he was talking to in that day, it was a little bit different. You see, at that point in the early church history, the Roman government had already started cracking down on Christians. And what Nero would do is he would take Christians into the Colosseum and they would have lions down there and he would throw the Christians out in the Colosseum with the lions for the lions to eat them and attack them for fun. And probably some of the readers of this writing that Peter wrote had seen their friends and family die in that way. And so when he writes, be careful of the devil because he's wandering around like a lion. And they're going, whoa, we know what that is. We've seen how that ends up. And the description wasn't to scare people. Rather, it was given so that we would know that God wants us to be aware of the challenges that there are out there. So that we can do our very best to resist the enemy. If we don't know and we don't believe that there's an enemy out there, we're going to be caught unaware. If you threw one of the Christians out in the Colosseum and they just stood there and said, well, there aren't any lions out here. And they see lions everywhere. That's just silly. And it's no sillier for us today to say, well, I'm not worried about the devil. He's not going to hurt me. Well, he's out there. And he's looking for something. And he's looking for a way that he can get at you. And I've said before many times, and I'll hold to this probably forever, that he knows exactly what to use against you. He doesn't use the same thing for all of us. Anybody here tempted to rob a 7-Eleven in the last week? Don't raise your hand. I don't, I don't even want to. Probably not. So he didn't use that against you. Because he knew if he did, it wouldn't work. He'd go, I'm not robbing a 7-Eleven. That's just stupid. But that person, as you're talking to the devil in the seat right there next to you, and the person over here swerves in front of you, and you honk the horn and you yell something out the window or wave at him out the window, were you tempted to do that? See, he got you. Because he knew just how to do it. Not only can the devil be resisted, the, the word resisted that's used here literally means to withstand. In that definition of the word, Peter was, he was commanding believers to withstand the devil. That we can stand against the devil, not in our own power, but through the power of the Spirit we can. There's, there's too many Christians today that if the devil starts to attack them, they go into the mode of, Don't beat me. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to withstand Him. We are supposed to resist Him. Not allow Him to beat us down. We don't have to be beat down. He pointed out that it's not by our strength, but it's through the grace of Christ and His strength. 
that we can resist the devil. He said that we can resist the devil in a couple different ways. One is by standing firm in the faith, verse 9. By faith, there's a couple things Peter could have been referring to. And we'll look at a couple and then you can pick which one you like. He could have been referring to a person's trust in Christ. In this line of thinking, we as believers can ward off the devil's attack by continuing to trust that Christ is going to take care of us through our faith. And we do this knowing that if we resist long enough, that he will flee from us. You go, well, how do you know that? James 4 and 7 says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So if we resist like Peter said long enough, then eventually the devil, he'll just leave us alone for a little while. And he'll go pick on somebody else. That's what he said. Another possibility of, of standing firm in the faith is that Peter was referring to the, the apostolic truths of the Christian faith. In this case, the people were to hold fast to what they had learned about Christ. All of the teachings that the disciples had taught and all the, when the people went to church, that they were to hold on to those things and know that regardless of what the devil did to them or tried to do to them, that these things still are true. See, we have to do that today, too. That no matter what comes against us, we have to realize that all of the things in the Word of God are still true regardless of the circumstances. That's hard to do sometimes. We are never to surrender the, our beliefs in order to simply avoid the possibility of suffering. That's what he was saying. If it comes down to it, and they're going to throw you the lions... Don't surrender what you believe. Hold on. Resist by standing in the faith. Peter encouraged his readers in three areas as they face suffering. And all these things go for us today also. In verse 9, he reminded them that they were not alone in their suffering. Now, that doesn't fix everything, but it does let us know that there's times when we feel like the devil's beaten up on us, that we are the only person in the world that's suffering. And Peter said, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. That's what he said. You're not in this by yourself. There's other people out there going through the same thing. What the devil wants us to believe, that everybody else's life is just perfect and they have no problems at all. And you must be really bad because you've done an awful lot of things and that's why you're suffering right now. Not true. In verse 10, he told them that in the end, that God would restore them himself. He let his readers know that they could take courage in knowing that the same God that could and would restore them would make them strong, firm, and steadfast. And those were promises that Peter said, these are things, if you stand strong in your faith, these are the things I know will happen. First of all, remember you're not by yourself. Second of all, remember that Christ, you will be restored and thirdly, remember that you will be made strong, firm, and steadfast if you withstand the devil. And then he closed all of this by giving glory to God and acknowledging the one who is all-powerful and able to do all of these things.
Living a life of humility does not mean living a powerless life. It's just the opposite. Peter was giving a plan for how all of this fits together. Excuse me. The elders are to be examples of the younger ones. And he told the younger ones to follow the example of the elders. Pretty good plan. Pretty simple. Except for that humility part. That's the part that we tend to struggle with sometimes. We don't have a problem with, with following the leader. But then that part where it tells us to be humble, sometimes we struggle with just a little bit. Even as Christians, we have to be careful not to be lifted up in ourselves as the Pharisees were. I've seen people that, that went to church and, and they'd stand up and they would testify. And there's, not, there's nothing wrong with testifying, good Lord, it's a great thing. Bless God, I was saved 45 years ago and I've never done this, I've never done this, I've never done this. Look at me. Just look at me. I'm dressed exactly like I should be. I got my hair just exactly the way it should be. And what are they doing? They're being lifted up in their own abilities. They're being lifted up in their spirituality. And it's exactly what Peter was warning against. That's the Pharisee. I give a tenth of everything I earn. I'm a very, very good person and I know the Bible. And I'm sure not like that guy. Scriptural humility involves the absence of arrogance. And that arrogance is rooted in, or the humility is rooted in the understanding that all we have and all that we are, we owe to God. You see, that's, that's what keeps us humble. If you became the, the greatest speaker ever, and, and you bought yourself a big tent and a uh, a semi-tractor trailer, a couple of them, and, and went all over the country preaching, as long as you recognize that everything that you said and did, you owe to Christ, God bless you. But if you get out there on the road, and all of a sudden the banner turns into your name, co-starring Jesus Christ, there's a problem there. You see, He is the reason that we're able to do any of the things we do. Humility focuses on others rather than self. A humble person praises and lifts up others without any regard for self-exaltation. One of the best descriptions of humility is found in one of the letters that Paul wrote. Philippians chapter 2 Verses 3 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Not much better. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. It's getting harder. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's tough. That's difficult. First thing Paul mentions is being like-minded and having one mind and purpose. And we all say, well, oh, I can do that. That's easy enough. And I agree we should do that. But it's that part in verse 3, that part that says, in humility consider others better than yourself. Where we really start having a little bit of problem. And then he follows up with the fact that we should not only look after our own interests, but the interest of others. Doesn't mean being nosy in other people's business. It means helping them when they need help. And some people say, well, that's just where I draw the line. I'm okay with that first part. It, it, it goes deeper than that yet. It all goes together. You see, we have to be willing to have a heart that does just that. To be willing to live a life that doesn't say, me first or what's in it for me. And just, just in case Paul wasn't getting his idea across, which I'm sure he did, but he went on to explain a little bit further. He makes this huge leap with this one example. He uses Jesus. And we love to sing, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. Well, until we get to this part. Because he uses the example, here was Jesus, Jesus being God in the flesh, who didn't make himself out to be anything special. That's what he said. Rather, he made himself nothing and took on the role of a servant. Here is God manifest in flesh who appeared as a man, is what he wrote in there, and here's this, this person walking around that could speak anything, and it would be done. But he didn't travel with a, a big caravan of semi-tractor trailers and tents. They had to go borrow a mule for him one time to bring him into the city. He didn't have his own. He was humble. And it didn't end there. Not only did he spend his time on earth as a man humbling himself as a servant, he humbled himself to the point he was willing to die. Not just any death, but the death of a criminal. The one who was without sin was willing to lay down his life and die as a common criminal. And then we want to change the words to that song to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus in some stuff. Because it's not easy sometimes. But that's the kind of humility and love for others that we are supposed to have and that we have to have as Christians. Another example of this type of humility is found in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist was preaching and he had he'd become quite the, the, the well-known person around town because people were flocking to hear him preach about repentance. And he was preaching down by the Jordan River and, and all the people would come down and he would baptize them unto repentance. He was feeling pretty good about himself. But he didn't let it go to his head because he preached that there was one coming after him that was far greater than what he was. Look at John 1, verses 26 and 27. 
I baptize you with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I'm not even worthy to get down and unlace his shoes. Then in John 3 and 30, he says this, again speaking of Jesus, He must become greater, and I must become less. We usually get that backwards. But, but I want to be greater. No, He must become greater, and I must become less. This is the humility of one that is not trying who is not trying to do the work of God for fame, for fortune, or money, but rather for the simple sake of the kingdom of God. Remember those warnings that Peter said at the beginning for the shepherd? Not because you were coerced into it. Not because you drew the short straw. Not because you think you're going to get rich. Jesus did it and humbled himself to the point he was willing to die. The Greeks of the first century thought humility was a, a negative trait that suggested weakness and a lack of worth or dignity. Jesus, on the other hand, in that same culture, took it and made it a complete cornerstone of the character of a Christian. Something that the Greeks looked at as being just a bad character trait. Matthew 18 and 4, look what Jesus said. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23 and 12. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's a pretty good formula. We as Christians must live differently than the world around us. Being clothed with humility means seeing ourselves as God sees us and respecting others by loving them unconditionally. Christian leaders are the model for Christians. As leaders, they must lead by example as Jesus did. And here's something we have to remember. Jesus never called us as believers to do anything that he was not willing to do. There is nothing in this scripture that calls us to do things that the people in here didn't do themselves. Jesus lived his life as a servant. He died for the unrighteous. And he loved those who seemed unlovable. Not just loved them. He loved them without limits or conditions. Look at Romans 5 and 8. It says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, He loved us enough to die for us when we were still sinners. He didn't say, Go fix yourself up and get your life straight, and then once you do that, come back and see me. That's not what He said. He said, I'll die for you even though you're a sinner. And it, the salvation will be there if you want to accept it. Christian leaders become role models of humility by submitting to Christ rather than advocating a personal agenda. They acknowledge the need for resources beyond themselves and they recognize that their burden will be lighter if they will simply cast their cares on Him, as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5 and 7. And I'll close with this. Humility can be a tricky thing. It's something that we seek and strive to have. 
And then when we have it, we need to be careful that we don't show pride in having it. Because if we do, we just lost it. Amen. Fortunately, we have the greatest example ever to follow when it comes to humility. And that's the example of Jesus Christ. God enrobed in flesh. He was born as a man. He was willing to live as a man. He was willing to be beaten. And he was willing to humble himself to the point of death. All for one reason, because he loved you and me that very much. When we really grasp that kind of love that has been shown to us, it should certainly make it easier for us to show that kind of love one to another. And not just one to another here in church, that's easy. But also to those in a world that is so lost and so hurting. Though it's not always easy to do, remember this. If they don't see it in us, it's unlikely that they will ever see it at all. God bless you.